Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Flinders University Fearless Conversation on the Future of Politics. This event is delivered as part of our Fearless Conversation series, which brings together a panel of industry leaders and Flinders University researchers to challenge current uh, rhetoric and create a fearless future. I've got to put my glasses on to remember my own name. I'm Mike Smithson from Channel 7, Chief Reporter and Presenter, and I'm pleased to be facilitating this discussion today, which is supported by Flinders University Fearless Conversations Partners, the Advertiser, Channel 7 and Hither and Yon. Today we'll be having a fearless discussion. I think you'll find about what the future holds for those in power and how the events of the past two years have shifted democratic responsiveness. We'll be exploring answers to whether the COVID-19 pandemic and disasters such as floods and bushfires have made us question the ability of our political leaders, and we have some here today, uh, on what we need from them in these times of uncertainty. Today, we welcome a Flinders University political scientist alongside recently elected and re-elected politicians to dissect these important issues. And to begin, I'd like to again acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of which we meet and we pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And we acknowledge and convey our deep appreciation to the elders of all nations upon which Flinders operates. Please feel free to join the conversation on Twitter and using the Fearless Conversations hashtag, which I think you're all familiar with. Uh, and if you're in the room via the Slido app, Towards the end of the discussion, of course, we'll open the floor for questions. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce, in no particular order, uh, our experts today. Please make welcome the South Australian Deputy Premier, Susan Close, State Member for Port Adelaide. Susan, welcome. Susan also holds the ministerial portfolios of Minister for Climate, Environment and Water, Minister for Industry, Innovation, Science, Ministry for Defence and Space Industries. Do you ever sleep? Doesn't sound like it. Susan also holds a PhD from Flinders University. Flinders University researcher Dr Rob Manwaring, uh, who is an associate professor in the College of Business, Government and Law and has been researching politics uh, for nearly 20 years now. Welcome, Rob. Independent federal member for Mayo, Rebecca Sharkey, who has served in the Mayo electorate since 2016. I remember the day. Representing communities across the Adelaide Hills, Fleurieu and Kangaroo Island, Rebecca is an advocate for local industries protecting farmland, improving local health services and addressing youth unemployment. And a new member of the South Australian Parliament, I, she really needs no introduction from me at all, Lucy Hood, who was recently elected as the member for Adelaide, a former journalist at The Advertiser. We won't hold that against you. Lucy was the Director of Policy for SA Labor Leader and now Premier Peter Malinowskis. Now let's get the ball rolling. We'll start the discussion with a nice, easy, straightforward question and I'll ask all of our panellists, but I'll start with Susan because she's probably, she may be in the running, you never know. Do you think the first SA female Premier has yet been born? Oh, I would imagine so. Yes, and uh, you'll forgive me for being a little bit partisan here, but we now have over 50% of the lower house on the Labor side of women as a result of this last election. So we had seven women before, and then we added seven women. Uh, and so we, out of the 27 seats, we, we hold 14 of them are women. I can't imagine that there won't be at least one of them who will be a very strong contender in the future. Now that said, I have to say this um, because it's both true and important for me to say as, uh, uh, as a deputy, um, Peter's not going anywhere. And uh, he's, he is young and he is excellent. So uh, when I'm talking about this, it's down the, the path a bit. But one of the many great features of the women who've come in are how young they are. So um, we've, we've got a really nice... When I, when I came into politics, sorry, I'm answering a bit too long, but when I came into um, opposition in 2018, I looked back, you know, who's coming up behind me as the deputy leader at the time, and there weren't enough women. So uh, a lot of us made this effort, but I was one of them, to make sure that there were women standing and that there was a range of ages coming in. And now four years later, I could not be more delighted. Rebecca, uh, you've been around politics now for a while. You've 
looked at what's happening in South Australia. Do you agree with Susan that that person has been born but is still some way off? And, and that we're not necessarily saying it'll be a Labor Premier, it could be a Liberal one. Look, I agree with everything Susan said, and I've got to say, as you know, someone who sits on the crossbench, it was, and a woman, it was really exciting to see so many young women. I think Olivia Savas, obviously Lucy, um, but coming through. Look, I think that the next premier, well, first female premier, I think she might already be in the parliament. Mm. So, if I look to the liberal side. Uh, it's got to be a woman in a safe seat. Uh, there's only three to choose from, but I think Ashton Hearn, and of course she also has part of her electorate within Mayo, I think she's quite formidable. Uh, I think Penny that, Pratt? I uh, don't know Penny. I don't know, you know, she's... When you're outside of Mayo, um, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really come to mind too much. And, and um, I, I assume from that that you're ruling out Vicky Chapman? I think so. I think that that's fair. And I think Vicky would feel that way too, I, I would assume. Um, but uh, but it's it's great to see so many women on the Labor side. Um, but Labor, Liberal, we need to have more women in safe seats. Uh, and I think that's critical because if you're in a safe seat, uh, there is a chance that you will uh, go up in leadership, you will become a minister, shadow minister, minister. Uh, and, and you're there, you know, generally there's longevity with safe seats and we're not seeing that in the federal parliament, particularly on the government side. And, uh, and I mean, look, look what we've been left with in the opposition here in South Australia. Lucy, you're, you have yet to resume or start your seat in parliament. Parliament will resume and you'll proudly take your place, we presume, now, well, we know, on the back bench. Uh, is the first Premier around? Could she be sitting at this panel today? <laughs> Maybe, but... No, Susan brought herself out. That leaves you. Out, Lucy. <laughs> um, I'd have to say um, I'm very uh, excited just to be the dedicated member for Adelaide. Um, funnily enough, when you look back at the seat of Adelaide uh, for the past 30 years, uh, whether it's Armitage, Shane Lomax-Smith uh, or Rachel Sanderson, um, you, we haven't actually had a dedicated member for Adelaide in government uh, for 30 years. So all of those uh, previous members were either in the ministry or in opposition. And so I've got a really unique opportunity here to be the dedicated member for Adelaide uh, and I can't wait. Just before we get on to Rob, from where I sit, the, the new breed of Labor women that are coming through, it's, it's almost the progression. You can see the transition that could take place in four years' time. The old guard could move out and the new female guard could move in. Is that part of the planning in the Labor Party? Well, I think our plan was always just to see more women in, in Parliament. And so, like Susan was saying, it's so exciting to know that uh, women make up the majority uh, of Labor um, MPs in the House of Assembly. So I think that was no clearer. It was such a wonderful day, the day after the election, where we all came together, just in my local uh, community at a local coffee shop that I'm at every, sat uh, every Saturday, every weekend. And we just had those that new... A group of young women that are coming up. Um, many of us are young mums and so that's something that's really exciting to see as well. Um, Olivia uh, is the uh, youngest female member of parliament, I understand. So um, yeah, that's right. And so that is, it's just blown so many people away. I think the reaction that we've had from the community, how many um, mums have, have come up to us and said, oh, um, I didn't decide who to vote for. My daughter told me who to vote for. Uh, so that's really lovely. Uh, and how many, you know, messages, um, little pictures and drawings we got from young girls. Um, and I'll quickly tell this story. I told it the day after the election. But my little girl, Audrey, I have two young children, uh, Audrey and Ned. Uh, Audrey's five, just started school. We play a game where um, I had a magic wand and I had to um, turn her into other members of my family. And uh, I said, abracadabra, act like Ned, my little boy. And she said, where's my my dummy. I said, abracadabra, act like dad. And he said, she said, what's for dinner? And I said, abracadabra, act like mum. She said, bye, I'm off to work. <laughs> and like, that is just so lovely that she just, it's just a completely natural given thing that it's, um, you know, dad cooking the dinner and, and mum going off to work. And so uh, that's just, uh, I just love that as an example of, of what the next generation's coming up with. That's the new age. Thanks, Lucy. Rob, over to you now. We, we've 
both of us have sat back and we saw Isabel Redmond, who didn't make it to uh, the, the government benches as a, as a Premier. Where do you see it? Is, is Labor leading the charge with females who might get to the top job or do you think it's an even race? Uh, no, <clears throat> no, excuse me. I would definitely say uh, Labor lead the charge because in one sense they have the institutional structures in place to enable a better representation. But to answer your I mean, original question, will we see, you know, has the, has the first female South Australian Premier been born yet? You have to countenance the possibility, probably possibly not. Um, one way of thinking about this uh, for me when I was thinking about this kind of question is to take one measure of uh, women's power in society, and that's the gender pay gap. So if you look at the gender pay gap, for example, one of the reports I read last year indicated that it's probably going to be another 26 years until there's equivalence between men and women at full time, let alone part time. So that would take you up to 2048. So if you go on the current uh, measures of kind of uh, equalising power between men and women, which is what this question really speaks to, then probably, you know, on that trend, it's probably 2048. And my reading would be, if this is then a, uh, perhaps a three-term Labour government, for example, what the often trend is, particularly there, is that female leaders have often come in uh, for the last two years. Uh, so that's quite common where uh, female premiers have made it through in history. They've often come in and they kind of mop up. Uh, so Christina Keneally, for example, in New South Wales would be a good example of that. So in one sense, I think there's still a lot more kind of work to be done uh, to kind of before that. So I'm not, I'm not confident we can say that yet. Rob, I'll stick with you. If we're talking female premiers, uh, what about female independence? And Rebecca will obviously be last in this, being one herself. Do you see an emergence of, of independence in the, in the political landscape, but particularly female? Yes, we do. And I've got a short answer to this and then quite a bit of a longer answer. So my short answer is, yeah, this is a clear trend now. So it's a couple of things have been happening in terms of the party system in Australia. So over the past few years, the vote share for minor parties and independents has grown up exponentially. So at the last federal election, it was the highest vote share for minor parties and independents uh, that we've seen. So clearly the electorate are dragging away or pulling away from the major parties. And that, that then poses new opportunities for minor parties. The longer story which around this, I think, Sue, is a problem, a kind of crisis on the political, on the centre-right. So what we've seen, there's a lot of research around the crisis of the right, and it's a slow burn uh, kind of crisis, is a kind of cultural change. Is that since the 1960s and so forth, you see a kind of electorates are kind of becoming more liberal in their attitudes. So if you look since you know, the 60s, decriminalisation of homosexuality and so forth. So if you, we track that opinion, through uh, the Australian election study, you can see that generally speaking, the Australian electorate, the median voter has become more left-leaning. That then becomes a problem, particularly for the centre-right, because on the one hand, it's called the silent revolution, the shift towards uh, uh, this. But then what's happening at the same time is a counter-revolution of more conservative forces that are operating as a break upon that. So what I think is particularly happening, what we, uh, around the kind of question about female independent candidates, they're happening in liberal safe seats or they're happening in non-Labour seats because in one sense, I would, I kind of would argue that the Liberal Party have kind of failed to adequately address this question of gender within their ranks. And so uh, some of these independent candidates are taking on particularly moderate Liberals to go on it. And I think it's partly because there's a, there's a slow burning crisis on the centre-right of politics. Lucy, from where you sit, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep these answers reasonably brief. We've got a lot to get through, but uh, if you listen to what Rob says uh, there, it, it sort of feeds into the narrative that we're going to see more independence. Is that a, a threat for you if someone ran as an independent against you? Uh, how would you take that? Yeah, well, as Rob was saying, we've probably more seen it in those uh, traditionally uh, safe liberal seats. Um, so uh, I think people, there was a, a funny kind of a satire parody account that said, um, you know, an exclusive investigation over the last two years found that uh, people who identify as swinging voters are just actually liberal voters who are too embarrassed to say that they're liberal voters. So um, I think uh, this election has just given people clearly what they want, which is a better option um, when it comes to um, someone who really stands up for what they believe in. I think just from listening to David Spears on radio today, uh, the Liberal Party uh, probably have 
an issue with who they are and what they stand for. And so when you can't clearly articulate what who your party is and what they stand for, that opens it up for uh, an independent to come in and, and clearly define um, what they're going to represent, how they're going to represent their community. So um, I'm not concerned because I know exactly um, uh, what my community care about and that I'm going to be fighting for their interests. So I think that's important, but also welcome the contest. <laughs> Susan, uh, you would hope, and you, from what I gather, you expect to be in power for some time. Is the emergence of, of independence, is it a now thing, or do you see that this will continue uh, into the future? Well, independence have been a feature of Australian politics for a really long time, and often they're a sort of quirk of um, circumstance. Um, it's a, Rebecca sort of seized a moment and uh, became loved by her community and will be impossible to dislodge. Um, uh, in, in my judgment, in my judgment. Um, but uh, I, I've noticed with interest this trend that, that uh, Rob and Lucy have talked about where the tr traditionally safe Liberal seats have been uh, threatened, the members there have been threatened by these much more moderate independents who both bring a, a moderate attitude and particularly on climate change there's a real consistency with um, safe Liberal seats being tempted to have someone who acknowledges that climate change is real, for example. Um, so that, that's been a major feature, but also the idea that the person is there for the community. And that's really down, as Lucy said, to how you conduct yourself as a safe seat member, or, or, or sorry, major party member. How much are you nonetheless attached to your community, uh, listening, acting, uh, being seen to be part of your community? It's very easy for people, particularly in safe seats, to feel neglected by their safe seat member. And uh, that's just a, a question of keeping everyone on their toes, as you say, welcome the contest. But it really does seem to be a feature of the, the Liberals at the moment, but that doesn't mean it always will be. But I think independents, they're, they're a feature of politics. Rebecca, you being an, an independent and a, a very well-known one, was it the fact that you had Nick Xenophon's backing? Was it the fact that uh, your electorate in the Hills wanted to see the end of the so-called Downer dynasty? and you happen to be in the right place at the right time? Or is it just that you work bloody hard to get it? I think it's, it's probably a number of issues that merge. Um, certainly in 2016, when, uh, when I was elected, um, I, Jamie Briggs had been the member for eight years. Um, I had the sense, I mean, I myself as a member of my community was frustrated with the style of leadership that we had and our representation in, in Mayo, and that's why I ran, that's why I put a second mortgage on the house and ran, which is a pretty crazy thing to do, but why I did it. But I think what we're seeing is a few things. I think that we're seeing um, the branch members of the Liberal Party, um, there's a, they're very different to perhaps the community at large. And so I think there's a, there's a real, dis there's a, divide that's happening and that's ha that happened in Zali Stegall's seat in Warringah that, um, you know, Tony Abbott was very supported by the branches um, but the rest of the community felt very differently and I, I think it's it's just um, circumstance that it happens to be largely women but then, you know, it, there's been many times, particularly in the, in the um, the previous parliament, in the, in my first parliament, the 45th parliament, when I would look down across the government benches and honestly it was the same suit and the same blue tie across the entire length of the front bench. Now that wasn't, that's not representative of my community or, or indeed the nation and so I think that that's, you know, people are recognising that. Let's just get back to the right place at the right time. The Liberals threw a lot at you at the last election with Georgina Downer, uh, that didn't work, clearly didn't work. Did that give you great confidence? Was that sending a message to the Liberal Party per se? Um, no, look, elections are really stressful. They are there and we're in the middle of one Tell now. me about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, probably for me, the by-election was perhaps more stressful because I had really 24 hours to leave my office, hand back the keys to my car, um, go and grab my dad's Magna keys um, for the car that he had parked in the shed and uh, drive that around. So that was really hard, no stuff, not nothing. And and my staff who were all out of a job stuck with me and we were all in a room at the back of my accountant's office. So that was really, really stressful. But look, you can't take it for granted. Um, I put myself out there essentially as, you know, a bit of a pin board um, 
to make us matter, to, to make us a marginal seat. That was the whole point. You know, back in 2016, we were not heard by a local member. Um, uh, we never feature on election night. Um, and I don't think that there's a member of parliament uh, in, in the current federal parliament or perhaps really many people in Australia that don't know where Mayo is. I'm not sure you could have said that a decade ago. Susan, with you, okay, we've seen the, the Labor Party surge to power. We've seen the women that are representative of your new look party. Should we have quotas or Labor doesn't uh, need them? We have quotas and um, that's why... That, that, that's not the only reason we have these women. It's not like each individual one was selected because they were a woman and we needed to meet the quota. Uh, it's the fact that we have quotas that changed our culture. Mm. And uh, so I've been the beneficiary, um, not for the seat of Port Adelaide, but in internal party positions of, oh, we need to find a woman. But more importantly, I've been in those discussions in the room where the decision makers, the so-called faceless men, have had to go, we're going to have to have a woman for that seat. And it's not like they go and grab a woman off the street and say, well, you'll do. Mm. They go find a good one. And, but it's because the rules are there that they're required to go looking. We all have a bias for people who are like us, who we're comfortable with, who we can have an easy conversation with. We all have that bias. Some of us deal with it, uh, address it, but it's not like it's a, it's a, you know the, an evil feature of factions that uh, those people are selecting their own. That's human nature. So you need something that shifts that, and uh, and the quota did that. And you only have to look at the two major parties three women on the Liberal side and 14 on the Labor side. One's got quotas and has for years and they're getting up to the 50% now, uh, so we've exceeded obviously, and the other hasn't. It, I don't know how else you change the Liberal Party. Rob, on quotas, again from where you sit, is it's the age-old problem. If you have quotas, you may not get the, the best suited candidate yeah. for on that position. So on quotas, I mean, Australia generally lags uh, in terms of gender representation of its parliaments pretty lowly around the world. I think the last report I read, Australia comes in about 57th and I think Canada's 59, but pretty much all the other countries that we would like to compare ourselves with are, um, are kind of ahead of us in the game there. Something like over 100 countries have some form of uh, quotas for their parties. And so the breakage is coming on the kind of liberal side. Historically, that's not the case. They always had stronger uh, gender representation very on in the early days. Um, the, the two things that strike me around, particularly around the issues for quotas, the kind of some of the lessons and things. One is that they're a struggle and an internal struggle. So if you listen to the interviews of particularly those early feminist pioneers within the Labour Party, getting that first quota of 35% was actually a really hard won victory. And it's interesting too, listening, Peter Malinowskis gave a really interesting speech at a forum pre, and he said, look, I'm still on the journey with this. So in one sense, this is still an ongoing kind of struggle. So the first point there is around, it's a sort of internal struggle to get them over there. But the second point and why it probably works quite well for Labour, it's been incremental. So it's since 1992 or 93, it's increased the increment there and that helps take the party on the journey. The difficulty, the problem for the Liberal Party is that ideologically they find that really hard. And where they have tried to build an institutional system, so in the 90s and 2000s, they had a number of leadership programs for female kind of candidates within the party, but they were either poorly funded or they kind of died out. So it has to have this kind of institutional backing. And that's why it just it's the single biggest thing that can make a bigger difference. But as Susan's alluding to, you actually need slightly more than just quotas, but they are integral. Lucy, from what you've seen so far, is politics, and I won't necessarily say the Labor Party, but is politics a boys' club? Uh, I certainly haven't found it that way. I, um, when you look at uh, the people that I've worked for, so I worked for uh, Patrick Conlon, Jay Weatherall um, and Tom. I mean, they were just, uh, Tom Coots and Tonus when he was treasurer, they were just so incredibly supportive and um, offering advice on on how you can progress your career. So uh, funnily enough, I had the awkward situation where I was uh, going to uh, become the treasurer's chief of staff, but uh, got pregnant, and my husband took the job, so <laughs> uh, which was quite unique. But um, you know, it was always that that was the progression that I was going on, and I was getting the support to get there. Um, when you look at quotas, so our quota is fifty percent by twenty twenty five. 
Look at the alternative when they say, the Liberal Party might say, oh, we're going to base it on merit. Um, that's suggesting that all of the men that you see in that room are there on merit, which um, in most cases isn't the case at all. So, and We'd love you... some names. <laughs> I won't go there. Um, uh, and then when you looked at the previous cabinet of the um, Marshall Liberal government, there were just as many Steves as there were women on their cabinet. So sitting around, and David, so sitting around and waiting patiently isn't working. And what I'd have to say in regards to when um, many of us were being pre-selected, so the seven new candidates, actually quotas, that, there wasn't even a conversation. It was just that these are the best people uh, to put forward as candidates. I really think Labor, in South Australia at least, has made that shift now. Mm -hmm. And what we want is the candidate that's going to win the seat. And there was just an earlier comment made about um, safe seats, how many women are in safe seats versus marginal seats. And I think it goes in two directions. So we have got quite a lot of women now in safe seats, including myself and uh, and, and several others. But uh, the reason you often find women in marginal seats is not because we don't value marginal seats, but because they're the way we get into government. And mm. women can often be a more attractive offering to a constituency. That uh, And I don't know if the research is still there, Rob, but that people tend to trust a woman over a man if it's a straight race between the two. There was That was always the, the understanding that if you're looking to break through, to have someone who the electorate will warm to and want to vote for, that you're probably a bit ahead with a woman. And uh, so that's, that, that's then the pull of having more women in the marginals, but we need to make sure that we're spreading that across to the safe seats. As okay, well. let, let's just move on, if we may. Bullying, we've seen it uh, at various levels of government. I'll start with you, Rebecca. Uh, Certainly, Scott Morrison of, of recent times has been very, very high profile uh, allegation of bullying. Now, whether it stacks up or not, we're not here to debate. But have you have you witnessed that? And do you think we're getting on top of that? Uh, I haven't witnessed it with respect to uh, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Um, and in fact, I, I think I've got a very good relationship with the Prime Minister and his door's always been open to me. So I, I appreciate that. Um, there is no doubt in the federal parliament that we have um, some serious cultural issues that need to be addressed. Uh, you know, Susan, I uh, were just talking about the hours of parliament, you know, state parliament compared to federal parliament. Um, we just pulled an all-nighter um, for no real reason. Uh, we sit until late at night. Um, we, the Kate Jenkins report said that 63% of, of uh, over 60%, I think it might be 63, of uh, female politicians um, have been harassed uh, and, and we're seeing 40% of female staffers. I mean, th there is certainly a cultural issue that needs so to be addressed. if I may interject there, are you saying the late night sittings, and I don't know, I know it certainly used to happen at, on North Terrace, uh, the dinner break was often accompanied by alcohol and then go back and sit. I don't know what the rules are in, in Canberra, but we've seen the Brittany Higgins case, not that that was elected members, but it, does one thing feed into another and the result's never going to be a good one? I think so. I mean, one of Kate Jenkins' recommendations was to have more family-friendly workouts, uh, and I think that will go some way, but it's just an acknowledgement of the behaviour. I mean, we, we don't even have um, a code of conduct for federal parliamentarians. Um, pretty much every workplace, place, if we threw a rock from where we are today, would have a code of conduct. We have nothing in the parliament we do for ministers, although what we've seen is a great deal of flexibility with that code of conduct in recent years. And all of this goes to trust uh, and also for women, and particularly young women, um, attractiveness to the workplace. Susan, I've witnessed, and I won't name names, but under a Labor government, very bad behaviour in the corridors of North Terrace. You may have witnessed the same thing now, I'm not necessarily saying it was bullying, but it was bad behaviour. Are those days gone? Uh, I hope so. Uh, but it's, a, it's a, the kind of workplace where bad things can happen. Uh, you tend to find this in any very, very hierarchical organisation where one class of people, be it judges or uh, surgeons uh, and politicians, have vastly more power than the people who work for them. And uh, so the, it's in some ways a feature of an abuse of power uh, as much as anything. And then you add into the mix what has always been disproportionately male 
uh, very few females. Uh, you add into the mix that there hasn't been a code of conduct, there is now in state parliament, uh, that there isn't a sort of uh, structure around our workplace so you can easily go for a complaint. I worked in Parliament House in 1995 for a year and I left because I was being bullied by a colleague. Now that colleague happened to be female. But the reason I left as a pretty young person uh, who didn't, I just didn't know how to deal with it is we had no common boss and I had no HR to go to. So I just thought I'll get another job. So uh, there are features of our of our workplace that I think need to be addressed systematically and the recent report that we had, the equivalent of yours, uh, recommended not only the code of conduct, which we've done, but also the establishment of a proper HR system. But then it is, and changing who's in Parliament helps, I think, having that diversity, uh, at least in gender. Uh, but I also think it behoves the leadership to model different behaviour and that's something that Peter and I talked a lot about when some of these allegations came up uh, what, why not just a few years ban ago. booze in Parliament well, full stop? It, it, look, it may come. And, you know, I like a drink at the end of the day. Um, so I, we'll go home and have yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Indeed. Um, but, you know, if I'm staying and having dinner in the in the parliamentary dining room and Parliament stops sitting. There is, there sitting, is soda water there, you know. Uh, indeed. There, and, but Parliament stops sitting and, I'm, you know, is that okay or is that something we have to sacrifice? So I'm not a wowser. I'm not, you know, into the temperance uh, movement. I, I you know, I'm, I'm an adult and I don't mind a glass of wine with a meal. Um, but I do wonder if that is something that will sort of be inevitable and I suspect it will happen if there's any more. If there's another outbreak of, bad, of that kind of behaviour and alcohol is associated, I can imagine that the chorus will become almost unstoppable. I think you might be right. Lucy, I'll, I'll just quickly get on to you on, on that point. You don't have to name names. You've worked in offices where they're in Parliament for ministers who have been very robust in their conversations. Uh, what's the difference between that robust conversation and aggressive, almost bullying conversation? Um, I personally haven't ever experienced a, a bullying conversation. Uh, having worked in both uh, journalism, hospitality and politics, it's the only real workplace I've ever known where uh, that robust conversation happens quite regularly. Um, I won't be able to say the words that it was said, but when I managed a pub uh, in London, uh, the first thing a chef said to me um, was, what do you think you're staring at, you stupid? And I won't say the word because it was pretty horrible. So I've always, uh, funnily enough, worked in those workplaces where that robust conversation does tend to occur. Um, and I, I think there is a difference between that, say, colourful language, or I believe at one point it was termed conversational swearing um, in one instance, mm -hmm. uh, and, and bullying behaviour. By one of your behavior. former bosses. Um, but uh, like I said, uh, Tom uh, as treasurer is one of the, the most supportive bosses, um, mm. particularly uh, of women and of having a family-friendly workplace where uh, there was no question if, if your child was sick or a family member needed your help, he was the first to say, you go, you go to them. Um, and so, look, I think there is a difference between people whose personalities are just uh, perhaps geared towards mo more robust language. Um, but at the end of the day, it's that culture and the practice around how you treat your staff that is, is really what you should be judged on. And, and um, I've only ever been supported in that regard. Yeah, Rob, is there a place or all workplaces now, and Parliament may be one of the last bastions of bad behaviour for all I know. Uh, I know in my workplace it is, you don't get away with any uh, any sort of bullying behaviour at all, yet we still hear stories of that, whether it be state or federal parliament. Is it, is it a problem? The, yeah, it is. And it's, um, I mean, the reading would be both the Jenkins report into the federal parliament and the report that Acting Equality Commissioner Emily Strickland did for the South Australian parliament clearly demonstrates these workplaces are really at least 20, 30 years behind the times in terms of their practices and where they're at. Uh, as already indicated, there is no federal uh, code of conduct for MPs at the federal level. We've only just had one uh, just been introduced in South Australia. So the cultural places there lag. And I think my other kind of quick reflection was about your discussion about alcohol. Of course, alcohol is a facilitator to these sorts of things. But actually, that doesn't speak to the main issue, which is one of power relations between men and women. And what comes out of both the reports is the power differential, particularly between powerful men and the way they kind of enact their behaviours is the kind of more of the profound issues, one of kind of cultural difference. And so looking at the reports in South Australia, something like 20% uh, 20 of the respondents had reported 
that they had experienced some form of sexual harassment or assault or bullying and uh, on a sexual basis and 77% of them said that they didn't feel comfortable or didn't want to report it. So we think that there's probably a chronic under-reporting of kind of bullying and harassment in these workplaces. There, as I think has been pointed out by Kate Jenkins and others, these, wouldn't, these are not workplaces that would pass the test in any other organisations. They lag behind significantly. Okay, here's another one for you, Rob. In the day of, the, these days of COVID times, uh, we've got two elections hot on each other's heels. There is intense media scrutiny. How did you see Anthony Albanese's stuff up two days ago? <laughs> Not knowing the cash rate or the national I'm not sure I can name rate. the cash rate either. I mean, look, all, uh, my, it's, it's a really interesting kind of contest, isn't it, of the federal election. And in one sense, is it going to be a change of government election? That's why it's, it's probably these things have taken on a kind of magnitude. I think also my reflection would be that the Labour Party is still generally scarred from the 2019 results. And it's kind of pushed them into a kind of probably they're quite anxious about this result. And of course, Morrison's fighting for his life. All parties uh, and candidates will often make mistakes and gaffes. I've done it myself uh, on, uh, you know, in terms of these things there. It's really, but you, you just have to say what a, what a dreadful start really for the Labour Party this week. It's it's a gift that really they don't need to, they shouldn't be giving to to Morrison. Of course, they can, they can lap it up. And I think... The point I think had been made is the gaffe about uh, the jobless rate particularly was unfortunate because in one sense the centrepiece of Labour's programme is around uh, kind of workplace kind of relations and uh, kind of jobs and so forth. So, so actually their economic agenda is a key part of it. That's why it's been so probably quite damaging this week. But the final point which we were talking about just before was the actual amount of kind of voters who are paying attention at this point, um, it's kind of hard to read. Many uh, people just see voting as a chore. They don't pay kind of close attention to you know, all the minutiae of the, of the campaign. So whether it has a profound implication is probably, probably not clear yet. Susan, would have Peter Malinowskis made such an elementary blunder on day one of a campaign well, as your didn't. federal leader? So that's that's a good indicator is that he didn't. Um, but look, I, I have a lot of sympathy. Um, I mean, we all laughed and we laughed for, I think, uh, a, a good four years about Stephen Marshall saying, vote Labor. Uh, you know, that is a, that's a mistake that he made, um, that he didn't actually mean that, right? So it's funny and it's terrific when we cut it up and put it into adverts um, that sort of surround all the reasons why you should vote Labor and then have him endorse us. Uh, but um, Anthony clearly cares about unemployment and clearly as he was saying the figure he thought it was, checked himself and wondered if he'd got it right and didn't want to say the wrong one. Is, does that disqualify him as Prime Minister is my question. So quite apart from whether people noticed or not, I, I really dislike the over-reading of something. Now, uh, if, if I had the sense that a, part, a, a political leader didn't care about unemployment, thought that it was fine at whatever level it was because, you know, people could go get a job if they wanted to, that would make me worry or, or not want to vote for it, them. It doesn't worry you the, that, that... So, that, so does that, it that affect is... the punters? I don't know. I don't know. So you, did you look at it and go, oh, well, it's just a bit of a mistake? Uh, look, I mean, I, I really like Anthony Albanese. I think, I mean, he's, as a human being, one of the nicest politicians but that, I've ever met, But that's not right? the question, Susan. So the question I'm, is, no, no, is he suitable, right? is so he suitable go, to be leader Ooh. not knowing that? Of course he is. Of course he is. Do you, do you think that there's any human being that can't go, oh, hang on, have I got that number exactly right? Let me get back to you. That no human being... Uh, there, there, there's a human being somewhere that could never do that. Um, I, I, I just think we are at times unreasonable in what we expect of our politicians. What matters is what they stand for and whether they care and whether they're capable. And hesitating over a number and wanting to be accurate doesn't speak to any of those. Hesitation's one thing, not knowing it's another. Lucy, in your days of, I guess we'll, we'll call you loosely a media minder, would have you let your boss fall into that trap? Would have, you, would have he been far better uh, briefed on do you know this, that or the other? You've got all the time in the world to have briefings first thing in the morning. Uh, that's an interesting one because often uh, when, say, I was preparing the Treasurer for the budget, um, you had to just quickly check, you know, 
basic things like, oh, what's the cost of bread or what's the cost of a bus ticket? And even at the or unemployment, leaders, maybe. Yeah, even at the leaders' debate, I think the both leaders were asked, uh, what type of bread do they buy and how much it costs? So where where does it end? Um, in, in terms of the variety of numbers, you know, how much is uh, the pension for a single or a couple? I mean, you know, where, where does it end? Um, I think uh, that behind whatever that figure is uh, are people that don't have a job. And so people have to actually make a judgment on which leader, regardless of whether they know if it's four, five, six, seven or eight, um, who's got the plan to actually do something about it. And like Susan said, I don't think anyone can question um, Anthony Albanese's passion for for uh, people um, uh, who can't find work and who are unemployed. Rebecca, quickly on this one, because we must move on to some rapid-fire questions before we get on to the audience questions. Please get your questions in. Is it a fatal mistake? Is it a fatal blunder? I was a bit surprised, only because every question time the government talks about the unemployment rate. Um, I think it'll be a case of where he goes from here because the challenge, the, the difference I see as someone who sits on the crossbench between this campaign and the last campaign is that we had a lot from Labor in the last campaign with respect to housing and negative gearing, and um, but we there's just not a lot to. We've had an aged care announcement. We've had uh, an announcement with respect to the 450 gigalitres, which is in an agreement. So that's a given that it should be happening. Um, but there's not a lot else. So I think that's why the media, you know, it's a vacant space at the moment. So, mm. you know, what's the narrative? Well, I what are you going to deliver? The advertiser had about six different stories on it and an editorial. So, uh, and Channel 7, the same. It was, it's a big deal because it's someone who doesn't know something they should. And it was exposed and it wasn't even a gotcha question. It was just a question, but that's another thing. Let's have a, we'll, we'll keep these answers reasonably short if we may, guys. Um, Rob, do you think the COVID-19 pandemic and other events, has it affected democratic responsiveness? Are people more politically aware? I think they are. I think the general punter is these days. That's a tough question. In one sense, we don't know the full research around, you know, how the public are responding to some of these kind of questions in terms of their, it's definitely changed politics in a way. Generally speaking, you find that you know centre-right governments have been adopting some of the economic strategies of the left around Keynesian kind of stimulus, and then you find parties of the left kind of trying to remind government about uh, kind of debt levels and things. So there's been, there's definitely, it's upended some of the traditional kind of patterns that political parties have responded to this kind of question. Um, and But I feel that some of the other research we had seen uh, for a panel we did the other week was around uh, the general kind of a feeling in the Australian electorate is that there is this sort of feeling of, of anxiety, of stress, and their kind of emotional heat map shows that they're kind of, uh, there's a sense of unease there, which probably is exacerbated by COVID. Lucy, uh, coming from the, the media background that you do, do you think that uh, there is, and you'll say yes, I presume, a, a place in politics for journalists, we've seen Mike Rand, former uh, media advisor to Don Dunstan. Um, we've seen plenty of journalists that have transitioned to politics. Is that because you know you've seen it from the other side and we all get somewhat close to politicians? It's a We deal with the Premier and others on a day-to-day -day basis. Is that the attraction? Is that you, you know how to deal with it? For me, it wasn't only because, um, so I was a school card kid, uh, first in the family to go to uni. So I um, transitioned to journalism and specifically uh, I was the education editor at The Advertiser. So because I was very much aware of the opportunity I was given um, and wanted to uh, tell the stories of, of kids and, and teachers and students. But then what I found for me was that I was probably frustrated. I didn't want to just tell the story, wanted to take what people were telling me and do something about it. Uh, so it was an obvious um, transition into media advising to, to get within uh, the government and policy space uh, and then move up. And I was of the view that, uh, well, if I want to write policy, I need to know how it's funded. So I moved into Treasury and, and formed helped form several budgets. So, But when you actually look at journalism and politics, there are a lot of similarities. Um, 
uh, newspapers, like the advertiser run campaigns, for example, on, on various things, where it's, you know, fearless conversations or uh, bigger, better essay. Um, uh, they run those kind of campaigns where they tell the stories of normal people and, and ask their ideas of how they want to improve the state. So there are similarities there. Um, and I just wanted to then move from taking that information um, and uh, being able to turn it into policy. Do you think, though, based on that, that you, you know how journalists tick and often it's the media that shapes the appearance of a, of a politician, yeah. good or bad or somewhere in between, does that make it easier? It does. I think it does. And um, uh, Brett from the Tizer, who I used to work with, actually asked me, you know, what is uh, the most terrifying thing about becoming an, a new MP? Um, for, for me, it's not, it, for many MPs, it might be the media. It might be um, the fact that they suddenly do have to do interviews because that is very um, new to them and unknown. Whereas for me, that's probably the area where I I feel most comfortable. I know all of the journos. I, I used to either work with you or, or then worked alongside of you um, in politics. So um, for me, it's probably the fact that I'll be entering parliament because there is just no other job like it. There's nothing you can compare it to. Um, but for other people, uh, um, for other new MPs, uh, the media side might be a bit um, uh, more frightening because they just don't um, understand that, that side as much. I always have the view I'd rather be chucking the rocks than having them chucked at me. <laughs> But, but they, that's just me. Susan, the new parliamentary session will start uh, next month. Question time. Is it going to be polite and civil or do you fear, is there enough ammunition on the other side to, to have a go at government ministers? Well, you know, half decent opposition doesn't actually need the ammunition. Uh, they, they just need to uh, be up and about. Um, yeah, look, Question time is a is a theatre. It is a contest. Um, the, the thing about politics, which you just can't get around, is it, it's a choice. For them to have our job, they need to bring us down. It's a, I win if you lose. And that all gets compressed, uh, in it, particularly at question time. Uh, so it, will it be polite? No, it's never polite. Um, will it be the same as when we were on the other side? No, it won't. Um, partly because there'll be so many women on our side answering the questions, which will be terrific. Um, and they, you know, will they get themselves together for the first week? Maybe, they haven't got a leader yet. They've got three candidates. Um, we'll wait and see, but I don't love question time. I, I can enjoy it watching it, being in it, either side. It's not my favorite thing, but politics is kind of worth you, it. Regardless. You would have to say though, there have been a number of politicians from your party in opposition who have led the charge of bad behaviour in question time? Well, it depends on what you mean by bad behaviour. But yeah, pretty lively, pretty, pretty, you know, uh, uh, Interjecting like I am at the moment. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but, that's right, but, that's how question time rolls though. Mm. Uh, and here's the thing, when you are the government of South Australia, you have over $20 billion at your disposal to spend in the budget. You have 100,000 public servants. You have the numbers on parliament to make law. So you have enormous power. What are the countervailing factors to, to make that uh, still a safe democracy? The media is one of them. Parliament itself, having the two chambers is one, but particularly question time. That's when the government has to answer questions. Uh, so uh, I, as I say, I don't enjoy the experience because that's not my, that, that's not my nature. But I absolutely respect that there has to be that accountability and that does involve an element of theater an element of uh, liveliness, and uh, I can't imagine that ever going away. Who's going to be the attack dog in opposition, do you think? Well, that's interesting because if David Spears, I mean, he's the, the most aggressive, if I can put it that way, of, of the ones who I think are left. I actually must sit down and work out who's, who's remaining because uh, they lost a You don't few. think the former um, deputy could be a bit uh, aggressive on occasions? Well, uh, yeah, Vicky could be, but is she going to be on the back bench? Mm. Is... Uh, Stephen Marshall, who is, can be very aggressive on either side but uh, in question time, but is he going to be on the back bench as well? So who's on the front bench other than David Spears, who's, who's pretty up and about? I'm not sure. So do you have a, a leader being aggressive or will he end up not being the leader? We shall find out. Rebecca, Nick Xenophon having another go. Um, he's still a friend of yours, I take it? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I haven't had a lot of conversations with Nick. I was... I'm happy for him to, you know, run yeah. as he's going. And His time hasn't come and gone. He, he's had a go at a senator. It was a disaster in the last state election. Uh, is Nick just clutching at straws here or do you think that he still has something to offer? 
Well, I'm taking a Switzerland approach to this because, <laughs> because I think that Rex Patrick has done a very good job for the last five years. Um, Nick is also very, you know, was very well known. Whether there'll be more people who know who want to vote for him again, I don't know. Um, it's the two major parties got together though and changed uh, the voting uh, rules for the Senate. I think fast forward 10, 15 years, we actually won't see much of a crossbench in the Senate at all. I think we're more likely to see more of a crossbench in the lower house than the actual Senate. It's going to be very hard for Eva to get in. Do you think if they cancel each other out, which is quite possible because they're going at each other's throats now, uh, does that open the door for the Greens to get a, another South Australian senator? Uh, well, generally across the nation, the, the Greens will take the sixth spot. Uh, so, yeah, quite likely. Rob, yeah. do you, from a, an analytical point of view, do you, do you see that Xenophon is facing an uphill battle and it opens the door for someone else? Um, I think, I think the, 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 the question's a good one, is actually what is untested about whether actually he, you know, he's been around, whether he can draw upon such kind of long-standing kind of tacit uh, kind of support in the electorate. And that, I think, is really, that is really unknown, which makes it so... Uh, kind of fascinating to see. But I just think, but generally I kind of point to this wider picture about the rise and increase in minor parties and independents. And it's it's interesting how that is still, you know, will continue to shape uh, Australian politics moving forward. The one thing I just wanted to pick up on, which I thought was spoke to a wider issue we were speaking to, was you were talking to Lucy about media and journalists in parliament. One of the things we did this year is we've done, an, uh, we haven't published it yet, a democratic audit of South Australia. And one of the things we've looked at more broadly is representation in the parliament. So we've talked extensively about gender, but we've also looked at characteristics like race and ethnicity, but also background. So 72% of MPs when we looked had a university degree. So actually it's other forms of representation that we want to see probably coming forward in our parliament. Our parliaments look uh, pretty white and pretty middle class in lots of ways. So there's something uh, around that story of representation which probably needs picking up. A question here from Sarah W. Should we be focusing on developing more bipartisan leaders in government departments rather than large and expensive turnover when government parties change? Uh, I'll probably, Rob, start with you and we'll, do, we'll keep this reasonably brief. Should there be more bipartisanship? Um, well, probably the answer should be no to a certain extent. Um, the very point of a liberal democracy is enabling choice uh, across um, for, for the electors to make choices. So how is it a country of 20 odd, whatever million people are? How do we make choices? We don't all agree on lots of things. So democracy is the primary uh, best mechanism or least worst mechanism in Churchill's words of, of enabling choices uh, to be made. So politics is about making choices and normative value choices. And in one sense, yes, there can be bipartisanship uh, on certain areas or particular policy debates, a lot of the committee work in parliaments, for example, is not like question time. But actually, in one sense, a, a push for a sort of technocratic or a bipartisan government is actually probably in some ways an unhealthy one and actually can cause even growing dissatisfaction that there is in the electorate anyway. So I'd kind of caution against uh, the kind of, about what we mean by that. Susan, we see a change of government. We saw Chris McGowan, the head of health, on his way. Uh, Nick Reid on his way and, and others. Is that an expensive way for taxpayers just to cope with um, a new Premier just doesn't want the old guard? Yeah, look, uh, I think if you saw a wholesale changing out of the senior levels of the public service, that would be of concern. But you expect that there will be a small group, less than a handful of, of um senior public servants who aren't quite the right fit for the incoming government. And sure, um, executives are expensive, chief executives are expensive and so terminating them is, is expensive. Uh, but it's really important that the Premier have confidence in the people who report to him because they all are employed by him, uh, that they are aligned and understand and are fit for purpose for the agenda of the government coming yeah, But surely in. isn't it the best person for the job does the job? Uh, what Indeed. was your complaint with Chris McGowan, for instance? Oh, well, I'm not going to get into talking about individual uh, chief executives. I'm sure that apart from anything well, else, it's potentially job. defamatory. Would you say, would so you say, would you say he had say. a tough job uh, and he did it, it reasonably he well? He had a tough job. Um, but the did Premier he do it reasonably well? Well, 
I, I don't want to say he didn't. It's just that 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 was not my line of sight. So I'm I wasn't health shadow. I'm not health minister, uh, and so I don't want to, to uh, comment in detail. Uh, I didn't see him in the way that I saw Nicola Spuria. So she was very much the face of uh, the health response to the pandemic and did an exceptional job and does an exceptional job. Um, but I just think you have to allow the the incoming leader to have some latitude to make sure that that. Uh, he, in this case, is, is having the people who will deliver the agenda that he has set, which is different to the agenda from the last Even government. if it costs taxpayers $2 million in well, seven As pay. I said, the government uh, spends about $20 billion in a year, uh, and what we want is for that to be effective for the people of South Australia. And, Lucy, the, and the Premier formed that judgment. You coming in, do you have a view on just the wholesale departure of senior bureaucrats, whatever the cost? Um, I will... You know, it's, Pete has been very clear that when he became Premier, if you're going to give him the keys, he's going to drive the car. So uh, I think that's uh, what he said just before the election or at the, one of the leaders' debates. Um, so uh, it's his policy, it's his vision that he needs to um, implement. And so you need to know that he has trust in the leaders that he's chosen to deliver those policies. So I think it's it's reasonable that he makes those decisions. Yep. Rebecca? Well, with respect to the public servants and the executive, can, can I just put that to one side and go back to something that Rob said around bipartisanship? I sit on the crossbench in the federal parliament and, and we've seen, you know, hyper-partisan behaviour in the parliament where at times, you know, there's just opposition for opposition's sake um, around bills and that goes both ways. And really, I would like to see more of an adoption of amendments uh, from the crossbench, from Labor, um, or, or the you know, or if Liberals are in um, opposition, just because you're then there to make really good legislation, and that's the point of it. And and we've kind of moved away from that, and we've moved away from uh, people crossing the floor. That was really quite common a few decades ago, and now you know it was made into a huge issue when Bridget Archer did it. Um, so I'd like to see you know more of let's work out what we have in common rather than, you know, let's deliberately, you know, sit behind uh, the trench lines. And as we wrap up, time is starting to become against us. And this is a question totally without notice to all of you. We have a federal election in under six weeks' time. 38 days. 38 days, thank <laughs> you. Not that you're counting. It'll be yeah. 37 tomorrow. Uh, Rob, do you see... What's your, what's your feel at this point? Are, are, you, are you happy to make a prediction, Coalition or Labor? I'm quite happy not to make predictions. <laughs> and, I, and I have been burnt by making predictions, particularly the 2010 election, a federal election was one which, um, in one sense, I read. And I think there's issues, the, 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 there's issues here around kind of polling and credibility of polls. If you look at the kind of current polling trend, then that would put uh, Labor in a, in a reasonably strong position. Um, but there tends to be a narrowing and also one of the things we know from the Australian election study is that increasingly voters are making their mind up at uh, closer to the election date. So that makes it harder to read uh, and I don't do predictions. Lucy, uh, Labor by how many? Oh gosh, no, that's, I was going to say I worked on the 2019 federal election review uh, with Craig Emerson and Jay Weatherall. So uh, it's very much uh, burnt into my brain, uh, the, you know, some of the reasons where, where the campaign didn't go right. So uh, I'd like to say that I just think they're working incredibly hard. We've got a, a great team there. So I just hope for the best. Okay, Susan, I'm going I, to be I, bold. I, I feel something similar. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to be bold. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, I wish that I'd put money on us. I don't know if we're allowed to bet. but um, uh, So I think Labor will win. And uh, because I'm just going to float right above this and go, who do we want as Prime Minister? Not that one. So, And I think a lot of people feel that way. So I think in the end that will carry through. Albo's decent, hardworking, competent, the other one, I hear nothing but bad feedback in the weeks mm. that we spent campaigning. The only federal issue ever mentioned to me was, can you get rid of ScoMo? Now, that's South Australia. Does that translate elsewhere? I don't know. But I, I will, for you, Mike, push the boat out a little bit and say it will be a Labor victory. OK, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> now, Rebecca, when, when and if you hold the balance of power <laughs> in the Parliament of Australia, well, no, all right, we, we assume you won't, but... Uh, What's your feeling at the moment? I don't know. 
I mean, we've got 10 seats in South Australia. There's 151 seats that need to be determined. Um, you know, that's a pretty big Melbourne Cup race. Mm. So not willing to no, be bold? I, no, no. Probably best to keep your powder dry. It might become a potent weapon yes. the day after. Yes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to, to thank our, our panellists, Deputy Premier Susan Close, Associate Professor Rob Manwaring, Member for Adelaide, Lucy Hood, uh, for sharing your time and knowledge. And, of course, Rebecca Sharkey, the Federal Member for Mayo. Also, I'd like to thank our audience uh, for your input, your interest in this Fearless Conversations event. Remember, keep the conversation going on Twitter using the Fearless Conversations hashtag. You'll be able to watch this session again on the Flinders YouTube channel on, uh, or on Flinders University's Fearless Conversations webpage. I'd like our audience to give uh, our panellists a round of applause. Thank them for, for coming along today. Thank you again and thanks for watching and have a great day.